Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. Uh, my name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Kerry Clack, editorial board member and columnist. And Brian Chasnoff, investigative reporter. Today's guest, uh, Adam Serwer, is, uh, he's an acclaimed writer for The Atlantic, and uh, his new book, The Cruelty is the Point, uh, whose title is taken from a phrase that he popularized uh, with a 2018 piece in The Atlantic, um, is a, it's a brilliant examination of the Trump era and the historical forces that, uh, that made it possible. And on top of everything else, uh, Adam is a San Antonian. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, there's so much uh, in the book that we want to get into, but first off, I, I was just I was curious uh, about what first brought you to San Antonio and and uh, and how long you've been living here. Uh, so I've been living here since 2018. Um, this is not a secret or anything, but I, I just generally don't discuss it much. Uh, my wife is in the U.S. Army. She's a surgeon, um, and she's stationed yeah. at uh, the, the Brook Army Medical Center down here. Uh, so we moved here in 2018. She was previously stationed in Korea for uh, uh, about a year. Um, and and uh, before that, we were in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. Uh, and now we live here in Texas. Yeah. And uh, well, there's a lot of uh, uh, Texas politics stuff that we can probably get into as we as we go along. I, I wanted to, to ask you about, you know, one of my favorite pieces in the book, um, the, the Nationalist Delusion. Uh, it, it kind of looks at... Um, uh, the denial, I think it's kind of been a, a, a denial that we've seen with, within the, the, the media in this country and probably within, uh, you know, Trump's voting base over, you know, why they supported him. And you, you really kind of looked at the numbers and, you know, because there's been this thought that it was, you know, primarily economic anxiety or, you know, the, which you, you talk about the calamity yeah. thesis that people were responding to, you know, concerns about all kinds of things that were going on. Is, is it your sense that many Trump supporters, uh, you know, were maybe not even acknowledging to themselves, uh, you know, what, what was really driving their support for him? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, uh, you know, something that I try to say is that I try to, you know, it's important to mediate between, um, you know, having a legitimate grievance um, and, and how, you know, and how that grievance is mediated by ideology into, you know, a solution being or you being receptive to a particular solution. So really, there's no question that the Obama administration's response to the housing crisis was inadequate. Uh, the recovery was very slow. It was painful for a lot of people. They didn't do enough to uh, protect homeowners, keep them in their homes. Um, and that, su- that suffering was borne disproportionately uh, by uh, homeowners in co- of color, Black and Latino homeowners. Um, so, so there was a genuine uh, problem. Um, but to the extent that there is a genuine problem, you know, it's not, not necessarily the case that your preferred solution is the correct one. And what I did for the nationalist delusion piece uh, was I, I went to Trump rallies and I talked to people about how they felt about uh, the things that Trump was saying at the time about Latinos, about Muslims, about black people. And what they uh, almost always said to me was, you know, I, you know, I think racism is wrong. Uh, you know, I think that Donald Trump's not racist. I, I don't think the things he's saying are racist. I think he's maybe not as polished uh, as he should be. Um, you know, he's a businessman, not a politician. He speaks bluntly. Um, you know, so he, he's, he's not mm-hmm. saying things, phrasing things correctly. But when you ask them about the policies he was actually proposing um, that were discriminatory, they said they supported them. Um, and so to me, this, this is sort of a, a, a psychological mechanism 
for, you know, preserving your sense of self saying, you know, I'm not racist, I don't believe in racism, but then, you know, engaging in discriminatory behavior or supporting discriminatory policies. Uh, and this is very old. I mean, one of the examples I use in the piece is, uh, you know, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. He gave this speech, uh, this very famous speech, the cornerstone speech, where he says, you know, the Negro, uh, the cornerstone of Confederate society is that the Negro is not equal to the white man. Um, and, uh, you know, years later after the war is lost and he's in prison in New England, he's writing his diary and he's mm -hmm. saying, well, I don't have any problem with black people at all. And, you know, that cornerstone speech thing, that was all fake news. I tried to correct the reporter. Mm -hmm. He didn't listen to me. Um, <laughs> you know, slave, you know, I don't have anything against black people. Slavery had nothing to do with the war. And this, you know, he wasn't the only person to do this. Jefferson Davis actually said, you know, I have no problem with black people. Slavery wasn't the cause sure. of the war. And this becomes the sort of kernel of the lost cause propaganda yeah. campaign, uh, through which, uh, the, uh, causes of the civil war are whitewashed and, uh, the, uh, you know, Jim Crow is intellectually justified uh, by portraying Reconstruction, which was a flawed but genuine attempt at creating multiracial democracy in the South as, you know, a kind of, quote, Negro tyranny, as the uh, racist historians of the time put it. Um, so I think, you know, part of this is really uh, it goes to the core of, I think, American identity, which is you have. Uh, the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal, uh, and and it's signed by uh, a lot of men who own other human beings, um, and that hypocrisy was understood even at the time. I mean, there mm -hmm. were there were there were uh, black people in the colonies at the time who are saying, you know, well, this is hypocrisy because I don't have the same rights as you, um, and even Jefferson is a. There's a great lecture by John Hope Franklin called uh, Racial Equality in America, where he discusses, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson attempting to put a clause in the declaration that condemns the king, not, you know, any of the colonies, but the king for the slave trade. Um, and he, he, it, this is sort of a political thing, uh, at least it appears to be. He's trying to get the, the slavery message in there by condemning the king rather than anybody in the colonies, but it doesn't work. So even Jefferson, who, of course, is a slave owner who writes, um, you know, a, 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 an elaborate justification right. uh, of, uh, of slaveholding uh, in notes on the state of Virginia, even he understands that this is wrong. Um, this is not like a contemporary looking back thing. There are lots of people who understood it was wrong at the time. And that contradiction really, you know, uh, it, it manifests itself in this desire to deny, you know, the very nature of your actions. And it's very old. It's something all Americans do. And it's and it's been with us for a long time. But, but you, you don't believe it's premeditated. You think it's, a, it's, it's some sort of weird psychological game that people play with themselves? I think that it's not a game. I think it's just, you know, this is, it's part of, I think it's partially human nature, right? But it's also a desire to reconcile how you live your life uh, with what you consider your values to be as an American. You know, you, you, uh, you write in, in the book about uh, how Trump supporters uh, or the, the Trump allies were able to sort of turn the, when, when there started to be accusations of, uh, against Trump of, of racism, kind of turning the racism argument uh, against uh, Hillary Clinton in 2016 uh, when, when she made the, uh, you know, the statement about how a percentage of his supporters were, were so-called de you know, deplorables. And I was thinking about uh, when, when I was reading that, I was thinking about what's going on now with this, this obsession that we're seeing now with, with critical race theory and about education in Texas, we're seeing this push for patriotic education. And, um, you know, Ted Cruz recently, uh, 
put out a statement that critical race theory is quote as racist as Klansmen in white sheets. And it, it felt to me very like a very similar thing to what you were describing, which is you know, trying to turn like an assessment of, of racism or, or the, the racial issue in this country into try to make the argument that this is itself racist. Um, and I wondered if, you know, how, how, what you, what you thought about that and, 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 and how you, what you basically think about this whole obsession that we're seeing now with critical race theory. I mean, I think you, you sort of have to, um, I think we have to distinguish between critical race theory as the sort of, uh, school of thought in which the scholars themselves don't necessarily even agree with each other that examines, um, how racial inequality can persist in the presence of formal legal equality. And then there's critical race theory, quote unquote, in scare quotes, which, has seemed to become an umbrella term for any re-examination of the role that racism and discriminatory policy right. has played in America's past. And I think fundamentally, we're, we're again, we're having a very old argument, which is, you know, to what extent is uh, racial inequality the product of deliberate government policy or even inadvertent government policy and uh, that has produced racial disparities? And, and to what extent is it um, you know, the natural result of inborn differences in ability. Uh, and if you're conservative and you think that state efforts to remedy inequality are an interference with personal freedom, then you, you want to, you know, make the argument that these, uh, these inequalities are not the product of government policy. They don't need to be rectified through state intervention. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, if you are someone who's looking at this history and saying, well, you know, uh, government policy helped build the white middle class while impoverishing black people. Um, our neighborhoods are segregated on the basis of government policy. Black people were not able to um, gain loans to buy homes or, or or get capital to start businesses in the same way because of centuries of or de- centuries and decades of discrimination. I mean, the this sort of creates, I think, a, a sense of obligation towards uh, the government doing something to fix it. And I think that's really the argument that we're having and this sort of all this other stuff uh, is uh, sort of peripheral to that. The question is, is the present just and how you determine whether the present is just is by looking at the past and what happened at the past. And to some extent, this is about uh, you know making sure the version of history that gets told either justifies or implicates the present. Uh, and I think, to be honest, I mean, like you look at some of the stuff that's happening here in Texas with this sort of kerfuffle w- w- with the Alamo, this Alamo event that was sort of shut down. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, you know, it's it's true that there is not one single cause for the Texan revolution, but you can look at the constitution of, of, of the first constitution of Texas, which bars free black people from living in the state, which, uh, y- you know, prevents the legislature from outlawing slavery. Slavery was very much a part of the original founding of Texas. It doesn't mean it's the only reason why Texas was founded, but it was obviously a big part. Adam, one of the things that, uh, many things that you do very well is what you just alluded to is you use a history as a prism to what's happening today, especially the way you delve into, into, into reconstruction. And essentially what we're talking about is, is denial, denial of the reason for the Civil War, denial of the legacy of slavery, systemic racism. We had that moment, that George Floyd moment, when it seemed like people who had never wanted to accept the legacy of racism, systemic racism, were willing to open their minds. And now here we are back to, you know, 
critical race theory, which, as you said, is a is, is just uh, any avoiding any kind of critique of racism. Um, but this is all predictable, right? I mean, look, what you said about the Floyd thing, I think that is the sort of uh, proximate impetus for this. I mean, part of this, this is I think this is not just a, a, a you know, the past year, although I think the, the George Floyd thing was really important. Um, I think, you know, during the Obama administration, when the Ferguson uprising happened, um, you know, I think there was a, a sense that uh, people were sort of asking the question, how do we have a black president? Uh, but we still have these like tremendous racial disparities and these problems, with racial discrimination and inequality. And that sort of the um, that that sort of self-reflection was accelerated um, by the election of Donald Trump and his sort of overt uh, white identity politics. And then, you know, George Floyd just sort of unleashed, um, you know, the changes that had happened in the intervening years in terms of people trying to figure out, you know, how did we get here? Why did this happen? Um, and I think uh, that recognition, even though, you know, we've already seen public opinion swing in the other direction because backlashes, as you pointed out, um, are simply a part of American history. Um, it, people, I think, on, uh, I think a lot of people on the right were frightened by the breadth of that recognition of the uh, lingering force of racism in American life. Uh, and, and so, you know, are, are in a sense, this is an attempt to, uh, you know, slam the lid down uh, on that Pandora's box and prevent future generations from reconsidering this legacy uh, in a comprehensive way. Now, that's not to say that everything that we're seeing in schools is correct or right or the way things should be taught. Uh, but I think when we're talking about the larger argument here, uh, I think that's what it's really about. Adam, you know, you, you, in the, in the title piece, you, you, you really kind of get to the, the issue of, uh, you know, I, I think what's, what was unique about Trump as a political figure was just the way that he was, um, able to that 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 his supporters could could sort of uh share in this enjoyment of you know his his attacks his hostility uh, against anyone that they felt was you know was different than them and um i wondered if, if when you look at it because i mean i look at back at the 2016 presidential field and what would have happened if he hadn't run do you do you think there was any other a uh, recent Republican politician who could have filled that space. I mean, I wonder about someone like, you know, if Sarah Palin had, for example, run in 2012, is there anyone else who could have, um, you know, maybe sort of, uh, you know, tapped into the resentment and all and, and everything else that he was able to do uh, in the way that he was that he did it? So I think Donald Trump is very much a reflection of the constituency that now exists within the Republican Party. I mean, look, they're, they're um, when when Mitt Romney ran in 2012, he had previously been the, the moderate governor of Massachusetts who, you know, helped implement uh, an effective right. state health care plan. Um, but by the time he was running for president, he was disavowing that. He was making birther jokes. He was, uh, you know, wooing Donald Trump for his mm -hmm. endorsement. Um, and I think Romney was, you know, he was telling everybody yeah. he was a, he was severely conservative. And Romney was sort of a less convincing um champion for this kind of politics, but he, you know, he was attempting to be like what Trump excelled at being. Um, and so, and I think part of this is simply that Trump as someone who consumes a tremendous amount of Fox news, uh, was really able to validate the concerns of that subset of Republican voters who are really marinating 
in that in that sort of Fox News universe every day, where they're being told that you know the, the liberals are pl- are plotting their destruction of of their way of life uh, through this, that, and the other. Um, and when he goes to these rallies and he ta- and he sort of airs these grievances, it is mm-hmm. a kind of it creates a kind of intimacy, not just because he's attacking the people that they're uh, worried about or afraid of, because they're being told that these people want to destroy them, but he, he's um, he's validating the things that they're seeing on Fox News. He's making them feel like their feelings are real um, and uh, justified. And I think that that is very powerful. Um, one of the the sort of depoliticized way I put it is, you know, if you, if you, when, you know, when we were kids, you know, you, you probably saw a bunch of kids who are cool or popular, or whatever, teasing a kid who was less cool or less popular. Um, and the kids who are doing the teasing, they are, you know, in essence, forming a bond um, around this sort of act of cruelty, this act of transgression mm-hmm. um, uh, against this other person who's on the outside. Um, and this is just, you know, when you look at those rallies uh, where Donald Trump, you know, you know, tells uh, black and Latina congressmen to go back where they came from or, you know, that he wants to lock them up, that is sort of that elevated to a political level. It's uh, a part of human nature. It's not that... Um, it's not that only conservatives are cruel or liberals can't be cruel. I mean, in fact, I, I, I don't know if you guys saw this, but as it, it, you know, I remember when the ice storm hit Texas, there were a lot of really annoying people uh, who were sort of saying, oh, well, Texas has this coming because they voted for Greg, yeah. Greg Abbott. Um, yeah. And it was really obnoxious. But what you didn't see is like, you sure. know, for example, when Ted Cruz was mocking California because they're rolling blackouts, what you didn't see was the governor of California saying, Hey, Texas, well, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you shouldn't have voted for Greg Abbott. You saw random people saying those nasty things, but you didn't see the political leadership doing it. Um, and that to me is, is less a reflection of the individual virtue of conservatives or liberals in America than the fact that the, the Democratic Party, um, has to win a lot of, uh, to, to be viable, it has to win votes from people who are, uh, you know, from a variety of different uh, racial, religious, ideological backgrounds, while the Republican Party is largely reliant and not entirely. I mean, Donald Trump did better, you know, uh, among, among Latino voters in particular, uh, you know, especially here along the Rio Grande Valley, um, but is largely reliant on a more homogeneous coalition. Now, maybe that changes going forward. But, um, you know, I think that is, you know, what, the kind of politics that we're seeing, I think, is largely the result of the respective diversity of the coalitions or the lack thereof. Adam, I was going to ask you, you know, in Texas, do you, do you think there's a certain threshold where more practical concerns like not freezing in your home kind of overrides this, uh, this urge to engage with the culture wars? Um, uh, in other words, do you think the freeze that we all experience in Texas will, will have an uh, appreciable effect on, on how um, conservatives view the, the current leadership at the legislature? I don't know. I think it's, I, I mean, like, I would like to think so. Um, but, you know, the conservative legis, I mean, the, the, the state legislature was obviously, you know, going very much all in on culture war, uh, this session and was very proud of it. I think in part because Abbott knew he was going to face, you know, a- Abbott was not, um, I think Abbott was dealing with the difficulty of having to fight off criticism from his right flank. Uh, I think he uh, was not as irresponsible right. as he could have been, um, given his, you know the, his political motives to sort of dismiss all restrictions, um, you know, because that's what uh, a big chunk of his base wanted. Um, and I think partially, you know, the conservatism of the last 
uh, of the last session, I think, was in part uh, a result of Abbott wanting to make sure that he is not vulnerable to a challenge to the right that he's now facing from, of course, Alan West, the former head of the state GOP who moved here from Florida. Um, I would like to think that practical concerns will override uh, the culture war stuff. Um, but obviously, Texas is a pretty conservative state. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, 2018 looked like maybe it was uh, more purple than perhaps it actually is. Um, but there are a lot of people in Texas who strongly identify as Republicans. And that means that it's going to take a lot, I think, to dislodge them from their support for whoever the Republican nominee for governor turns out to be. Adam, could you could you uh, talk about your own identity? Uh uh, it's interesting. So I, it's interesting following you on Twitter and seeing how over the years, how people critics will come at you <laughs> and attack you personally, not, you know, just assuming something by either your name or by your picture. And, and of course you've posted photos of your grandparents to correct them. But could you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, my father is, uh, is Jewish. My mother is black. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, among, uh, you know, in a, in a very large, uh, affectionate and loving black family. Um, and I've just been me m- my whole life. Um, you know, I'm obviously aware that, um, you know, the, the way that I call it is I call myself a light bright after that old, um, there's an old saying, uh, about, uh, light skinned black people, which I would not recommend repeating, yeah. uh, which is, you know, light bright, damn near white. Uh-huh. Um, and so I shortened that, um, or I'm not even sure that I did it. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, someone in my life, um, used that appellation and I just use it to explain myself to people. Um, but you know, uh, I occasionally run into people who are very confused about the idea that someone can be black and Jewish at the same time, or that they find my, um, background confusing. Um, but I've just been me my whole life. And the, the truth is, is that there are a lot of black people who have cousins or uncles who are like me. Um, and so it's, it's really not that unusual. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a part of, uh, the way it's just a part of American history. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I don't tend to talk about it very much because I, I, I don't actually think it's that interesting. Like I said, there's a lot of, you know, there's more people like me than people, uh, really understand. And, the fact that I'm biracial, I think, is probably the least I, I, is like maybe the least interesting thing about me. And and part and I, you know, when I'm writing, I try to not make it about me. I think there's a you know, writers we can be narcissistic. I think it's very tempting to want to write about ourselves all the time because we find ourselves to be endlessly fascinating subjects. <laughs> um, but I tend to try to avoid it uh, because I think you know, I think it, I, I, I try to avoid that temptation because I think it's you know, readers don't necessarily find you as interesting as you find you. Um, but occasionally, I do get questions about it. I think that. Uh, <laughs> Um, I think the context of me posting that thread, it's not my pinned tweet anymore, but I think the context of, of me posting that thread was, um, it, 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 there was some sort of controversy going on about Sean King at the time. And I was like, you know, yeah. I just want to make clear that, uh, you right. know, <laughs> whatever you guys are talking about with him, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, you, uh, in the book, you have a you have a piece called uh, "Civility is Overrated," and you're kind of looking at, uh, you know, this this sort of hunger that people have, which uh, 
we're seeing now to to uh, to to want to believe that uh, that we can have a sort of civil political discourse. And and you, there's really fascinating look at. Uh, basically how the Republicans during Reconstruction in uh, in the name of civility, you know, sort of sold out um, the the idea of, of Reconstruction. Um, I, clearly, Joe Biden uh, is, is a believer in the idea that that um, we can have political civility, that there can be sort of some bipartisan uh, Govern, governance. Um, do you think, as we're seeing, you know, things play out with the infrastructure deal and, and, and other pieces of legislation? I mean, do you think that he's he's miscalculating in some way to believe that uh, it, this can happen? So, I think two things. I want to distinguish between mutual respect, which I think is honorable, um, and, right. and you know, to the extent that it's possible, people should engage in it, and civility, which at the time was really being used to say. Um, you're being too mean to Donald Trump and you should stop. And this is in fact mm-hmm. what Donald Trump said at his rallies. Like we need to stop the politics of personal, personal assassination, <laughs> which is like, you know, what, what would you have left? Um, but you know, as I said in the piece, it was, you know, the, the, this way civility was being used at the time was, um, I can say what I want and you can shut up. Um, yeah. and I think mutual respect comes from a different place, which is sort of a, an acknowledgement of the other person's legitimacy and power. Um, so to some extent, uh, you know, I think politicians do what they, um, politicians uh, respond to their means of holding power and to the power of their opponents. Um, and in the case of reconstruction, what happened was that, um, you know, the Democrats successfully disenfranchised, uh, black men at the end of reconstruction the republican party no longer had a political reason obviously they still had moral and ideological reasons to do so but they no longer had like a political motive to defend black rights in the south because there was no constituency for black rights in the south now that black Mm -hmm. people had been disenfranchised um and what followed after that was a kind of mutual comedy where you know these um issues of human rights of, of basic human constitutional rights could be discussed um, you know, because uh, it's it sort of in this polite, abstract way, in part because, um, you know, black people had been excised from the polity. Uh, and mm-hmm. that is a kind of um, civility that I don't think is desirable. Um, and, and I think when you look at what's happening now with a lot of these voting restriction laws um, and these attempts to sort of, uh, you know, uh, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's attempts mm-hmm. to make voting harder, whether it, it, it's, it, it, it's an attempt to prevent the part the rival party's constituency from um, being able to uh, successfully contest the power of those in office that's a real problem because when people don't feel beholden to uh, when politicians do not feel beholden to the voters then they no longer uh, feel like they have to uh, meet their obligations towards them and you can see this in sort of an extreme way with Donald Trump during the pandemic when he said things like, oh, well, these deaths, they're happening in blue states. Um, what an extraordinary mm-hmm. thing for a president to say. I mean, he's not even... Do you, do you know how many millions of Trump voters there are in New York? Or for that exactly. matter, I mean, this is another thing about Texas. Sure. Like, you know, I mean, you know, when liberals talk shit about Texas, you know, you know how many millions of, of Democrats <laughs> there are in Texas? Um, it's such an extraordinary right. thing. I mean, I think that the red state, blue state thing has been like, I think, somewhat harmful for our frame of thinking of understanding the right. diversity of the American people within these states. Uh, but this sort of idea that, you know, Trump did not need to worry about 
the lives of people in states that did not give him their electoral votes where, you know, millions or thousands of people may have voted for him was just sort mm-hmm. of extraordinary. Um, and that, that's sort of an, ex- uh, that is a, a, an extreme version of what happens when politicians no longer feel civic obligations towards, yeah. uh, voters who they feel like they can wield power without. Uh, and I think, you know, I, th- I think that's a real problem. Um, and I think, you know, to the extent that, uh, a kind of that mutual respect that I was talking about is possible, it has to be, um, rooted in a recognition of the inviolable rights of the other side. Not in, you know, I've made you so weak that I don't have to worry about you anymore. Where do you see this going, Adam? Um, you know, I do not know. Uh, I, I try to say, you know, I, I don't know how to, I, 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 I have been, um, I think in the past few years, I've been very humbled um, by my inability to make predictions. Um, what I will say is, I'll say two things. One, uh, you know, I think this sort of politics that the Republican Party is engaging in is going to continue until they uh, pay a political price for it. Um, two, I think that, you know, the politics of the Biden era may end up being more volatile than we expect. Uh, you know, when you look at 2012, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the, the inauguration of the second term of Barack Obama, I don't think a lot of people would have predicted uh, that four years from then Donald Trump would be president. Uh, so I think it's important to remember that what seems clear, a path that seems clear in the present um, does not necessarily, uh, it doesn't go where you necessarily think it's going to go. Adam, before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about one of your most recent pieces, which is in the book, in which you call for uh, uh, abolishing police unions. And here in San Antonio, uh, mm-hmm. we recently had a ballot proposition, Proposition B, which would have... Uh, uh, taken away the uh, collective bargaining power from uh, the San Antonio police officers. Um, and, and Proposition B uh, failed, but it was a very close election. And, and uh, I was curious if, if, mm-hmm. if, if the, the, the success um, of that proposition, I mean, you had people who were, who had never really been involved in politics before and uh, were able to put, put a campaign together pretty quickly. Were you surprised by how close uh, that election was? I wasn't surprised because I, I had no expectations. Um, I think obviously, you know, uh, it's a little complicated because that referendum would have been more symbolic than substantive. The city already said that they were going to do meet and confer, which is basically right. the same thing, even though it's yeah. not bound by pr- pr- uh, collective bargaining, but it's the same process um, that occurs um, in uh, Houston and Austin. Um, and, and the police were sort of, uh, they were saying that this would defund the police, which obviously it would not because, right. um, you know, it's about, uh, paying benefits. It's not about, you know, removing resources for fighting crime, but it's also about job protections um, in terms of, you know, disciplinary issues. Uh, and San Antonio, obviously, it, it has one of the stronger union contracts. This is something that has drawn a- attention nationally. Sure. Um, and, and I think my issue with police unions as they currently exist um, is that, you know, we were talking earlier about politicians uh, when they're no longer accountable to a particular constituency, they tend to treat that constituency with contempt. Uh, and I think that the big problem with police unions is that they have so insulated officers from misconduct that not only does it silence criticism um, of officer abuses within departments, because if you can't, if you if you know that if you know the guy is not going to get in trouble uh, for misusing his authority for 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 breaking the law in some way. 
um, then you're less likely to speak up because what's going to happen is you're going to end up ostracized. You're going to, you know, people aren't going to come uh, when you call for backup. They're going to consider you a rat. Um, and this has a negative feedback loop outside the department, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, in communities that are suffering from high crime, they don't trust the police because they understand that the police can treat them um, nearly any way they want and are unlikely uh, to get in trouble for it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what you have is just like a, a, a vicious cycle um, that, you know, preserve that keeps people in the job who probably shouldn't be in the job um, and poisons trust uh, in communities that are, are most in need of protection from the police. But also, I mean, just in, in general, the, the, the rhetoric of unions, um, you know, and, and it, it, this hasn't been as bad in San Antonio in, in recently, but if you look at the, you know, uh, the George Floyd protest, the head of the union there said that the Black Lives Matter movement was, uh, they were a bunch of terrorists. They said George Floyd was a criminal, um, basically implying that, you know, he, uh, he had it coming. Um, and this is sort of really incentivized by what the unions, uh, you know, a- again, I think this is a structural issue. This is not about the individual uh, virtue or goodwill of police officers, which right. is that if you want to defend your authority to use lethal force, you have to uh, communicate to the public that you are in a kind of Im- in Im- imminent danger from the public, the people you are supposed to protect. And that necessarily lends itself to this kind of rhetoric of, you know, anybody who is subject to unjust use of force is a criminal who had it coming. Um, and again, this is another thing that, that poisons the community, but it also uh, poisons re- the relationship with the community, but it also poisons the culture of the police department itself against the community uh, that they are charged with protecting. And so I think it's just, a, it's a, it's a problematic vicious cycle. You know, I, I, I write in the piece, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of police officers and they said, you know, this, the union helped me get benefits. It helped me get decent pay. And, and I, I understand that. Um, but this issue of, uh, you know, protecting officers who engage in misconduct, regardless of how egregious the misconduct is when it is, um, uh, you know, because and, and in particular, uh, protecting officers who engage in that, in that kind of misconduct, who are then reinstated because of weird technicalities in the contract. I think that is just a really toxic force um, that is undermining not only the, the effectiveness of policing itself, but their relationship with the community that they're supposed to protect. Well, I'd encourage uh, everyone listening to get a copy of The Cruelty is a Point by Adam Sherwer. I think you'll, I've learned a lot. I think you'll learn a lot by reading it. Thank you very much. Adam, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for being part of the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Adam. <laughs>